Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. If you have your Bibles today, I'm gonna to ask you to take them and open them with me to the New Testament book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter one for this morning's message and for our time together today. I do uh, wanna ask your pardon this morning. If you hear me sniffing here and there, I try not to be a distraction, but I'm dealing with a little bit of a cold. And so what that means is, is that everything's clogged. So I can't hear you very good. So if you wanna amen today or just say hallelujah and praise the Lord, say it extra loud, okay? Uh, I would greatly appreciate that as you worship the Lord and you thank the Lord uh, for his word this morning. Uh, we are in a sermon series here at Crosslink called, entitled, Called to Commit. Called to Commit. And as we are in this sermon series, I, I understand that this topic of commitment is one that is very sensitive to us in our culture. Uh, frankly, in our culture today, um, we have a very, uh, unfortunately, in many ways, a very uh, a culture that values self-comfort over commitment, a culture that values our preferences over a commitment. And much of the things that we enjoy in our culture that really are, are kind of catered to us and things being how we want them to be, we kind of come to an expectation that everything's gonna be about what we want and what we like. But what we want and what we like is not always necessarily good for us. I was reminded the other day of how quickly we can get frustrated when things don't go the way that we want. As I have shared with you numerous times now about an, an app on my phone where, that I learned about back at the end of November where I could literally listen to any song that I wanted to. I could create my own playlist, have all my artists, all those different things. And I have enjoyed it for the past few months until literally this week, as I was thinking about this kind of uh, self-indulgent, you know, uh, 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 self-comfort culture, I, I, I took my phone and I pushed the app and I pushed play on one of my playlists and they played the song and I was like, that's great. And then it came again, it played the song and it kept playing the same song. And so I was like, man, what is wrong with this thing? And I tried to see if it was on continuous play and it wasn't. And I tried to change some things around and literally every song, I could scroll down like 50 songs, every song I hit played the first song over and over again. Needless to say, I almost threw the phone out the window. But anyway, my point is, is that we get so focused on how we like things to be and what's comfortable to us. But I believe what God is calling us to in the context of this sermon series is he's calling us to a place of commitment, a place of commitment. Now, I realize today that in our culture, very few of us want to be committed to anything. We, we unfortunately oftentimes don't want to commit to a job. We don't want to commit to a relationship. We don't want to even commit long-term to a team because, hey, they're going to go through different seasons and ups and downs. And there's all these different things that are often kind of challenging that. But God is calling us to commit. In fact, I believe wholeheartedly this morning that frankly, our culture makes it so easy to not commit. In fact, we would kind of come to this idea where we value self-comfort over commitment to where we would think, you know what, if I'm not happy, if things aren't happening quick enough, if I don't like where things are heading, if too much is being asked of me, then, then, then I'm just going to leave, right? Because I'm not really committed. But is that really what God wants for those who profess the name of Christ? Is that really what God wants for those who are part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? The fact of the matter is, is that it becomes very easy in our culture to live without commitments. It really does. Even in the context of a church, it's easy to live without commitment. 
Sometimes we don't commit because we've been hurt in the past. And so we don't commit because we think by not committing, we're protecting ourselves and we're kind of sheltering ourselves from, from exposing ourselves to that kind of hurt in the future. But the fact of the matter is this morning, there's nothing you can do to fully protect yourself from hurt in this world. We live in a fallen, broken world and we're all going to experience hurt along the way. Sometimes we simply don't commit because frankly, we like to have no strings attached. We like to come and go as we please. And that may work for a season of time, but when the hard times of life come and the challenges of life come, what will end up happening is we just begin to be further isolated and further distant. And I believe in that the enemy works in a powerful, powerful way. Sometimes we don't commit simply because we justify or we say, well, you know, it's a, it's a temporary season of life. I'm only here for a year or two, so I'm not really gonna get connected but the fact of the matter is this morning, there's only one God and you're not him and I'm not him either. Only God knows what tomorrow holds. Only God knows how long you're really gonna be in a place. I remember years ago, pastoring in Christiansburg, we had several medical students that came to the church that I was pastoring and, and they would say, you know, pastor, we believe that, that God wants us here. We're growing, we're being challenged in the word, but, but we're not really willing to commit. And I would say, well, why not? And they'd say, well, we're only here for like two years or, or, or maybe at most three and to be clear, some of them God called away and they're all over the country today, but half of them, guess what? 10 years later are still living in the same community in Southwest Virginia. The point is only God knows the future. Only God knows the details of what he has in store for your life tomorrow. I believe what God is calling us to see in the context of this sermon series is a call to commit to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the church that he gave himself for in 1 Thessalonians chapter one, I believe what God is calling us to do today is to see what a commitment to the Lord and then evidence what a commitment to the church should look like. Unfortunately, committing to the church doesn't mean necessarily that you fulfill that commitment. And unfortunately, committing to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior doesn't necessarily mean that you're gonna have a commitment to the church that he gave himself for. And so I believe God models for us in the life of the Thessalonian church what this should look like in our lives. So I'm gonna ask you, if you're physically able, would you stand to your feet for the reading of God's word? We're gonna read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Here's what the Bible says. It says, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, listen to this interesting statement. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brother, beloved of God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, 
That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this morning and for this time together. God, I pray today that through your word, you would speak so loud and clearly to each of our hearts and lives. God, I pray today that we would understand clearly your calling first to our relationship with Jesus Christ. And then through that relationship with Jesus Christ, may we understand your calling to commit to your body, the church. So God, convict us where it's needed, change us where it's needed, and may it all be for the name and praise and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You may be seated this morning. This morning, I wanna ask you a simple series of questions that we have been considering all throughout the course of our sermon series, and that is this. Are you committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and are you committed to his church? Are you committed to the Lord Jesus Christ? That question is a question of salvation. And by that, I'm asking, have you believed in Jesus to be your Lord and Savior? Are you committed to living your life for him? It's a matter of salvation. I think it's so important for us to understand that everything we're going to read and see in the message today from 1 Thessalonians has at the basis, has at the foundation, the understanding that the people at the church in Thessalonica, they were a people who were committed to Christ. They believed in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Please understand this morning, there are many people today who may have grown up in a church. They grew up where people were talking about the gospel. They grew up hearing the Bible, maybe going to Sunday school. There are some today who think, hey, you know what? The church does a lot of good, so I'm gonna go to that church and I'm gonna give and I'm gonna do all these things and this means that I'm gonna be saved. I'm gonna be forgiven of my sins because I attend a church and I'm a partner with that. Please understand this morning. The Bible says there are no good works you can do to earn salvation. The Bible says it doesn't matter your background, it doesn't matter your heritage, it doesn't matter your creed. Literally, your grandfather could have been Billy Graham, but that does not save your soul or change your life. The only way we are saved and rescued from our sins is by personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way. So, so here's the good news. The good news is it doesn't matter where you come from, who your mama and daddy are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter if today's the first time you're hearing the good news of the gospel. The very moment you believe in Jesus Christ, regardless of your color, regardless of your background, the moment you call upon Jesus to save you, you are forgiven and you are saved, rescued from your sins. Amen. That's a wonderful truth. So here's the reality. The reality is the foundation for this call and commitment to the church is first found in a call and a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see that in the context of the Thessalonians. That is the basis for everything we're gonna read in this text. But here's the reality. The reality is when we have a relationship with Christ, we next begin to understand that his calling in this relationship is not just a relationship that's he and I, it's also a relationship where he has brought me into the body of believers. Do you remember when Jesus was teaching the disciples how to pray? He taught them to pray, our Father who art in heaven. Yes, there's a sense where I have a relationship with God and God is my heavenly father. But here's the wonderful truth. The wonderful truth is the moment I believe in Jesus Christ, I am brought into a family of believers. I'm brought into an identification with a body, the body of Christ. In fact, we begin to understand that in the New Testament in two different ways. We see the word church in the New Testament used in two different ways. First, and I've talked about it before, is the big C, larger C, church. 
This is every believer from every age, from every nation, from every denomination. Every single person who believes in Jesus Christ is brought into what we know today as the church. Here's a problem with that. The only problem with that is that the larger church is somewhat mysterious, it's invisible. Right this moment, right where we're sitting in Harrisonburg, Virginia, 2020, we cannot identify fully the larger church. The fact of the matter is there are some believers who've gone before us who are already in heaven today. The fact of the matter is there are believers gathered in Nicaragua and Ukraine and China and Russia all throughout the world today that we don't know who they are. And the Bible says we will not see that larger church until we're brought together in heaven with the Lord. It's then that we'll identify that larger church. Until then, God has given us the local church, the local assembly, the local body of believers to be a picture of the larger church. In fact, all throughout the New Testament, when God gives commands and instructions concerning the larger church, nearly every single time, God gives the application in a specific local body of believers. Here's how I want you to respond to the church. Here's how I want you to value the church. Here's how I want you to love and live for me and serve me. And then he gives them an application in that local body of believers that they can see and minister to and encourage and be encouraged by. In fact, throughout the New Testament, 114 times, God gives us literally the word church. And over 90 of those times, it has a local church application. In fact, listen to these references for just a moment. Now, I have to confess, I'm dealing with a head cold, so if I could repeat my numbers, please forgive me, but listen to these, Romans 16, 1, 1 Corinthians 1, 2, 1 Corinthians 16, 19, 2 Corinthians 1, 1, 2 Corinthians 8, 1, Galatians 1, 2, Philippians 4, 15, Colossians 4, 15 and 16, 1 Thessalonians 1, 1, 2 Thessalonians 1, 1, Philemon 1, 2, all of them give direct references to a specific local body of believers. In fact, There are many in the church culture today that would say, oh, well, you know, the local church, a commitment there is not that important. I mean, I'm a part of the larger church, so what's the point of the local church? By that same statement, here's what they're saying. They're saying that the Bible's not really that important. Did you know that of the 27 books in the New Testament, 18 of them have direct instructions and applications with specifically mentioned local churches? Even over half of them have indirect references and applications of general ways that Christians are to live in the context of the church. The point being is this, if we think that the local church is not all that important and it's not that big of a deal in God's grand scheme of things, frankly, we are dismissing over half of the New Testament. So God, I believe, is calling us to a place where we understand our important uh, part of committing first to Christ and through that commitment to commit to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, This morning, I want us to see three things about this commitment. Now, if you're still with me this morning, would you say, all right? right. I understand today in preaching this topic that it gets uncomfortable. I understand anytime somebody in our culture is talking about commitment, it gets uncomfortable. I have been a rec soccer coach for many, many years. And usually my first practice, I try to have a meeting with all the parents Now, what they don't know, and if your son ever plays for me or a daughter ever plays for one of my teams, I'm kind of letting you in on a secret. My goal at the first practice is to build a relationship with the parents and to get as many of them as involved as I can. Okay, I don't tell them that up front, but I get them all together and, hey, guys, here's what we're gonna do for the season. It's gonna be exciting. It's gonna be fun. I want you to cheer and I want you to celebrate. But here's the deal. I need at least four of you to help me coach this season. 
And it's amazing, man, when you're, when you're talking about how, how great their children are and, and how wonderful, man, they're in, they're in. And then I'm like, hey, we need you to help in the practices. Me no hablo inglés, you know, like, I mean, seriously, like, at that moment of commitment, it's like, let's look anywhere else. We don't want to focus on this. This is uncomfortable. He's asking something of me. Oh, you know, like, that's how it is. We're like that even in the context of the church. So my hope and prayer, I don't care if you have, hear anything that I have to say, but I do hope you hear what God has to say in his word. Three things that I believe God is calling us to see as we consider the church and its members. Now, so far, we've looked at the church and we've seen this illustration of commitment in the context of Christ. We saw the church and its master. Jesus is the head of the church. How committed was he? Here's how committed he was. He loved the church and he gave himself up for her. Jesus willingly laid down his life. That's how committed he was to his bride, the church. Last week, we saw the church and its ministers, and we saw the commitment and the calling of a pastor, of a shepherd, and what that should look like in the context of the local church. In 1 Thessalonians 1, God begins to give us a picture of what a member should look like in the local church. As we studied this this morning, I, I pray today that first and foremost, if you are not a committed member in a local church, that in looking at this example, that you will, call, you will pause today long enough to examine, why am I not committed? And is it a sufficient reason for not saying yes to the Lord and his word? And then my second hope this morning is that if you are a committed member in a local church, whether that's Crosslink or another church from out of town or another church in town, and you're just kind of with us today to, to visit with someone, if you are a local church, my hope and prayer will be that when you look at these observations, you would look inwardly and examine yourself and ask yourself, are these things true of me? Because just because you said yes a year ago or 10 years ago doesn't mean you're fulfilling that today. What does it look like when you look at the commitment of the church and its members? Three things I want you to see this morning, three characteristics of a member of a local church. Number one, church members commit together to do the work of the Lord. Church members commit together to do the work of the Lord. Now remember, the basis for everything we're seeing here is not just a call to a membership. It's not just a call to a role. It's not just a call to say, yeah, this is my church. No, first and foremost, there's a call to relationship with Christ. But in, in through that relationship with Christ, there should be a commitment to a local body of believers. In this case, the Bible tells us in verse one, it was to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. The church of the Thessalonians was in a city called Thessalonica. It was a Gentile city at that time. This city is still alive today and is still a very thriving city. In fact, in that day, in that region, it was the, had the second highest population of anywhere in that region. The apostle Paul went there uh, on his second missionary journey. He went there, he preached the gospel of Christ. Uh, the Bible tells us a Gentile city that they worship many false gods. In fact, that not only did they worship these false gods, but the worship that they had to these false gods uh, largely consisted of, of, of great drunkenness and immoral parties. I don't know how to say that, but uh, that's what was happening in, in their, their pagan worship, so to speak. That's the culture that Paul went to. Paul went there and he preached the gospel message, a grand total of three Sabbaths, three weeks Paul preached there. He wasn't there for months, he wasn't there for years. Three weeks before the Jews came, persecuted him, people were here, put all kinds of pressure on these believers. 
But in three weeks of preaching the gospel, people were hearing the message. The Bible says they were turning from their sin. They were turning from their immorality. They were turning from their worship of false gods and they believed in Jesus Christ. They were saved. And the Bible says they began to be identified as a local church, the church of the Thessalonians. And then from there, Paul writes. Paul was only there three weeks. So now he writes to them to encourage them and to challenge them about how to continue living for the Lord. And in doing so, he characterizes these three huge things. First, a a member of a local church should be committed to do the work of the Lord. We see that in two phrases here. The Bible says that Paul writes and says, we give thanks to God always for all of you. In other words, there was no member left behind. There was no one out of fellowship. There was no one in the assembly who was missing the significance of what God had done and calling them out of darkness into light and calling them out of death into life. And here's what he says. We're making mention of you in our prayers. Why? Constantly bearing in mind two statements, your work of faith and your labor of love. Paul's saying, listen, when I think back to that time with you, when I was fellowshipping with you and I was preaching God's word to you, when I think back to those three short weeks together, here's what I remember. I remember your work of faith and I remember your labor of love. In other words, I'm commending you for your evidence of service to the Lord. When the Bible gives this phrase, this work of faith, there are some who have taken this little phrase here and they said, see here, this means that you can work hard to be at a place of faith. If you do enough good works, if you're like the next Mother Teresa, if you're looking out for the poor and looking out for the the hopeless and looking out for those who are rejected, if you do a lot of good in your life, then you're gonna earn faith and you're gonna please God. But can I say to you this morning, you can be Mother Teresa, you can be Billy Graham, you can do as much good as any nonprofit organization in the world, but here's the reality. There is no amount of good works that will ever change your standing before God. The Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us. Listen, listen, God has been gracious to me in my life. In my life, growing up, I literally, I'm a, I, I, in my family heritage, on my dad's side of the family, literally, there were many who were, who were devout preachers of the gospel, but there were also many who had very severe and deep addictions. But in my life, literally, I'm like a fifth generation of, of people who've preached the gospel. My, 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 my dad at one point and my, 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 my great uncle and then my, my great grandfather and my great, great grandfather, they've been preachers of the gospel. I've been raised in church my whole life, but here's the reality. That means nothing about my standing before God. I, I was taught to serve God before I could literally even talk a sentence. Seriously. I remember being a little boy on Saturdays, the guy who oversaw our children's ministry, he would go to a local neighborhood and he would go visiting them on Saturday mornings. And Sunday morning, we'd take a bus and we'd pick up all these kids and we'd bring them to church. I remember being a little guy and being a part of that Saturday visitation and bringing people to church. But can I tell you, none of that saved me. There are no good works you can do this out of heaven to earn faith, to earn salvation. No, the reality is I had to come to the conclusion that I was a sinner in need of God's grace, that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. It had to be a personal response in my life to realize that without Christ, I literally was destined for the wrath of God, would be separated for all of eternity, and I believed in Jesus and was saved. The fact of the matter is, is that we're not saved by good works, but here's the truth. When you believe in Jesus Christ, when you surrender to the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord, when you are forgiven of your sins and saved and set free, 
It's not because we work to get salvation, but here's the truth. When you are saved and changed, it begins to demonstrate itself now in good works. Ephesians chapter two says it this way. I love this statement. It says, you've been saved by grace through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. But listen to this statement. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. In other words, when you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, hello, it will demonstrate itself in the fact that you will follow his example, which is one of service. How did Jesus serve in John chapter 13? When the Bible says the disciples are gathered together in that room, there was no one to wash feet. Now, I'm not trying to be grotesque here, but stinky, smelly feet. I love you, but I'd rather not wash your feet this morning, okay? In that culture, they were walking in sandals and walking barefooted, and they were filthy. They get to that upper room. Jesus knew it. What did Jesus do? Jesus, the Son of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, he took off his outer coat. The Bible says he girded himself with a towel, and Jesus, literally the Savior of the world, humbled himself and got down on his knees, and he took a basin of water, and he washed the filthy feet of the disciples. That's not all he did. The Bible says the very next statement, he looked at them in John 13, verses 14 and 15, and the Bible says this, Jesus said, if I then, the Lord and teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. When the Bible says here this work of faith that they lived out, literally the word work means energy and effort that was exerted. And I don't know what that was in the context of the believers. They'd only been together three weeks, three Sabbaths of people who are believing the gospel and being saved. But anytime you got a group of people, there's work to be done. You get the picture here that they're serving together, that they're ministering to one another, doing what God had modeled for them in the life of Christ as Jesus served. We see this call and commitment to the work of the Lord. Secondly, we see that in the context of their sacrifice. Notice the next statement. He says, listen, I'm bearing in mind your work of faith and, I love this statement, your labor of love. Now, it almost sounds redundant. Wait a second, he's committing them for their work and their labor. I thought they were the same thing, right? What's the difference in work and the difference in labor? But here's the picture. The Bible gives us a unique word when it gives us the word labor. It's the same word that's translated in Revelation chapter two as the word toil. And it literally means to labor to the point of exhaustion. Now, please understand the apostle Paul is not saying, I commend you for being burned out. That's not what he's saying. But here's what he's saying. He's saying, believers, church in Thessalonica, I wanna commend you and I wanna celebrate you because I see how you are going the extra mile. You're giving it your all. You're leaving no reserves in the tank. You're doing all that you can. Why? What's the motivation? The motivation is no longer just faith, but it's also love. It's a labor of love. Now we struggle with that word in our culture. We like to use the word, I love you. That phrase, we, we think of it in the context of emotions. Oh, sweetheart, I love you so much. We, we, we think of that in the context, oh, I can't wait to find my true love. I hope that happens to me in my life. We think about love in the context of emotions, but remember the action of love is not merely one of emotions, but it's one of selfless sacrifice. That's what love looks like. Remember Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church and what did he do? He felt good about her. Christ loved the church and said, oh, smookums, you know, whatever. 
No. Christ loved the church and he, say it with me, gave himself. Gave himself. Here's how I envision that. Christ loved the church and he stretched out his arms and he died on an old rugged cross so that the church could be saved, so the church could be sanctified, so we could be set free from our sins for all eternity. Christ loved and therefore he sacrificed selflessly giving of himself for the glory of the Father and our good. By the way, husbands, I'll remind you that's the same sacrificial love that God has called us to show towards our wives. The picture is one of sacrifice. So Paul's looking at the church and says, listen, I commend you, your work of faith. It's incredible the way you're serving God because of the faith you have in Christ. But not only that, the way that you're serving God, the extent of it, because of your love for the Lord Jesus and because of your love for the body of Christ. A key mark of a member of the church ought to be that there is a selfless and sacrificial love for the church and the members of it. 1 John 3.16 says it simply, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And everybody says, amen. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. In other words, it's a call to service, yes, but it's also a call to sacrificially giving of ourselves for the glory of God and for the good of his church. So often I hear someone say, someone who's a professing believer, well, you know, like I... I don't really have to be committed to a local church to, to really be what God wants me to be. Like, I don't really have to be uh, committed to a local church. I get all that I need from doing my daily devos. I get all that I need from, you know, like kind of slipping in, slipping out. Like I get all that I need from tuning into this ministry and I hear this teacher and, and I get all that I need. But, but I, I wonder in that statement, Are you really considering what the body of Christ needs or what you need? I mean, think about it for a moment. If we're saying that Jesus is my Lord and Savior, then shouldn't our attitude and actions towards the church, his body, shouldn't our attitude and actions represent his if he is truly our Lord? Oh, Jesus, yeah, I got it. You love the church, you gave yourself for her, but Jesus, I really show up for what I can get out of it. Like, isn't there something wrong with that statement? I think of Jesus himself. The Bible says of Jesus in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for even the son of man did not come to be served. Here's what he said of himself, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In fact, I suggest to you this morning, this might hurt, but it's just the honest truth. I suggest this morning that frankly, if you profess that Jesus is Lord and yet you're only a, be a part of church or tune into something for what you can get out of it, I suggest that Jesus probably isn't so much the Lord as you think he is in your life. If Jesus is my Lord, then I'm gonna desire to know him and love him and in loving him, guess what's gonna happen? The Holy Spirit of God in my life is gonna begin to be molding me and shaping me more and more like the very image of Christ. It's a very contradictory statement to say Jesus is my Lord and yet I don't see the local church, I don't see his body in any way, shape or form like he did. And so I think God's calling us and he's convicting us in this like, like what does a member look like? A member looks like, one of the primary characteristics is that they have a mutual commitment together in the work of the Lord. Second thing, if you're still with me, would you say, all right? If you don't agree, get over it. Not really. I mean, don't, I'm, I'm kidding. Church members together, listen to this, church members commit together to walk with the Lord. Church members commit together to walk with the Lord. Now, now listen closely for just a moment. 
When the Bible speaks about our relationship with Christ, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. That relationship begins. And then that journey now of having a relationship with the Lord and spending time with him and praying and beginning to have that relationship, the Bible refers to in the book of Ephesians as a walk. You have a walk with the Lord. Truth of the matter is, is that that is an individual choice. You can't make me have a walk with the Lord. I can't make you have a walk with the Lord. I wish sometimes that we could do that, but that's not how it works. We have to individually make that choice. We have to make that, that priority to where there's consistency in our life, that we're re daily relating with the Lord, spending time with him, learning and growing and sharing. Like it's a daily walk with the Lord that individually we must decide in our own lives. We can't make it for each other. But when I say that we commit together to walk with the Lord, what I'm trying to understand here is that as a church, as a body of believers, when you commit to be a member, what you're doing is you're committing to one another that we're going to help each other in that walk. We're gonna pray for one another. We're gonna encourage one another. We're, going, we're literally going to instruct one another along the ways. Listen, we're gonna hold each other accountable. I don't know about you, but... The fact of the matter is when you study the Christian life, it becomes very, very clear that God never intended for there to be Lone Ranger Christians. Oh Lord, I'm gonna live for you. I'm gonna do it all by myself over here. That's not how God intended it. Now there are a few of us that might have a lot of self-will and self-discipline that we can do a lot of things on our own. But frankly, when it comes to spiritual growth and discipline, God intended for it to happen in the context of community. Acts chapter two, the Bible tells us about the day of Pentecost. The gospel is preached, 3,000 souls are saved. And the Bible says that day there were 3,000 souls added to the church. Acts chapter two, verse 42, and they devoted themselves together to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And all throughout the book of Acts and all throughout the remainder of the New Testament, what we see is this gospel-centered community of believers that are doing life together. Think you can do it all on your own. Let me ask you a question. How many of you at any point in your life have ever set a New Year's resolution of getting in better shape or eating healthy? Any point in your life? All right, the rest of you are so young, you have no idea what that looks like yet, okay? Like, most of us have lived long enough that we know we've had a resolution at some point, a goal in our life, we're gonna eat healthy, we're gonna get in shape, we're gonna do this. All right, many of you raise your hand. Now by a show of hands, how many of you effectively did that all by your lonesome without any help or assistance? Anybody? It's okay if you can raise your hand, right? There have been numerous times in my life, I was like, this is the year, this is the season, I got it. I'm gonna watch my diet, I'm gonna exercise, you know, I mean, I'm gonna find all kinds of information on the internet because the internet will tell me complete truth and never lie, you know, like this is what to do. And I'll start out good. And I mean, there's a lot of self-power, a lot of self-will, here I go, here I go, and three days later, it's over, you know, like, <laughs> done. But, but, but you know where I've seen that change? I've seen that change when there's been a group of guys that, that, that kind of we talk and we, we kind of exercise together, we work out together, we, we encourage each other, we challenge each other, and if we have to, we bust each other's chops. Like, dude, put down the donut, you know? Like, I'm literally just the other night, <laughs> this is hilarious, I wasn't planning to share this. I was at Costco the other day. I, I had gotten some things there and I had my kids, they were out of school because they had a teacher's work day and, and we sat down and, and it was lunchtime and my kids were like, hey man, dad, dad, can we get one of those pepperoni pizzas? Anybody had a pizza from Costco before? This is a very, uh, very sanctified sermon illustration, so hang with me for a second, okay? So, 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 
So sure enough, so I'm like, you know, let's get the pizza. So we get the pizza and I'm like, you know what? I need to eat healthy, so I order a salad. So I sit down and we're eating our meal. And this, if you've ever had a pizza at Costco, it takes up the whole table. So we're sitting there and I'm literally starting to eat and a guy comes up behind me and smacks me on the head. What are you eating? You know, just like that. And I was like, in Jesus' name, who do you think? You know, like, <laughs> and I turn around and it's one of the guys that I work out with who looked at me and was like, he thought I was chowing down on the pizza. He didn't see my salad below the table, you know, like, eating shamefully around everyone else. But anyway, we need each other. That's the whole point. When it comes to the cause of Christ, when it comes to living for the Lord, we need each other. So church members commit together to walk with the Lord. Listen to this statement. You will not be a mature, victorious, obedient Christian without a commitment to partner with others in the body of Christ. I love this statement. A distant Christian always ends up a defeated Christian. A distant Christian always ends up a defeated Christian. Please understand, your distance that you are allowing and logically figuring out and excusing in your mind is nothing but a lie and a tool of the enemy to get you exactly where he wants you to be. Because he knows when you're distant. He knows when you're isolated. He knows when you're coming and going with no strings attached. He's got you right where he wants you because you are vulnerable to his attacks and you're literally in a place where he can completely sift you and separate you from the body of Christ meaning the local church in that context. So notice, I love this statement, their walk with the Lord. Three things we see of this church. First, we see their comfort. They comforted one another. Verse three, the scripture says it this way, and I gotta move quickly. He says, listen, I'm keeping in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. They were steadfast in their hope. Why does he say that? He says that because the Thessalonian believers were facing all kinds of persecution and suffering. Think of these guys, these believers, these brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul had come to their city, preached for three weeks. He was threatened beyond belief and forced out of the city. And as soon as Paul leaves, they begin to direct all their pressure against them. They are being attacked. They are being persecuted. They're not only being persecuted by the, by the religious Pharisees, the Jews who really claim to know God. They were being persecuted and threatened by their own family. Hey, you don't walk with us anymore. You don't worship with us anymore. You don't live immorally with us anymore. Like you don't participate anymore. And they were threatening them. So severe were the threats that in 1 Thessalonians chapter two, Paul, Paul admits to them, I didn't even know if you would still be living for the Lord. Like, I, didn't, I didn't even know if you would still be like in the faith. I didn't know if you would still be committed to the Lord because the suffering and the persecution and the threats were so severe. But by the time Paul gets word about what's going on, here's what he comes to the conclusion. He comes to the conclusion that they're steadfast in their hope. Literally, it means that they were unwavering and they were resolute in their hope. What was their hope? Their hope was in Jesus Christ. Their hope was in his power. They knew that Jesus had come, that he had lived a sinless life. He died on the cross. He rose again from the grave. He ascended to heaven. He was preparing a place for all who believe. They were trusting the, the power of Christ, that Christ could work even the suffering together for, their, for his glory and for their good. They were trusting that Christ and his power could work in this hopeless and painful situation. They were also hoping in the promise that Jesus would one day come again. So here's what's happening. They're facing suffering and they're facing hardship and they're facing the brokenness of the world, but the believers, they stand firm, why? Because they're comforting one another. 
They're encouraging each other. The believers are committed to each other to say, listen, you're not alone. You might have lost your family and the news might be bad and so-and-so might have died and you might have lost your job and you might have felt like, like literally all hell was breaking loose in your life, but you're not alone. We're here together. We're brothers and sisters. We're committed through the grace and the mercy of Christ. We've been one made. We've been made one family. You're not alone. They're comforting one another. First Thessalonians chapter five says it this way. Paul says, therefore encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. Their commitment into the body of Christ in the local church was a commitment to comfort one another. Secondly, it was a commitment in their convictions. Verse four, knowing brethren beloved by God his choice of you for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Please don't miss this. So often when we go through hardships and pain and trials and difficulty, we think that, our, that the source of our problem and our suffering is somebody that we can see. As a pastor, honest confession, when there are struggles and there are burdens and conflicts and issues at times within the context of the church, it's amazing how easily and how quickly every problem can literally have a name. But the Bible says in Ephesians chapter six that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against spiritual wickedness. We wrestle against Satan and his forces that are doing all they can to divide and to destroy. Why? Because he wants to rob you of joy and he wants to bring you to a place where you're no longer effective for the Lord. The Bible says in verse six, I'm sorry, verse five, that they had received the gospel, but not only did they receive the gospel, they were continuing to live in full conviction. In other words, they were not swayed by the attacks of the enemy. They were not deterred in their faith. How often have we gone through trials and difficulties and we start to go through them and at first we're like, man, God, this really stinks. But the more we go through it, we get to a place where we're like, God, why? Why did you let this happen to me? Why does this always seem to happen to me, God? God, if you were real, this wouldn't happen. God, if you were good, this wouldn't happen. God, if your promises are true, this wouldn't happen. God, why? And we go through this place where we're really in a crisis of faith and we're questioning, really the issue is not so much the storm that we're in. The issue is truly, do you believe in God and do you trust him? Why? Because ultimately it's in those moments remind you that the enemy is a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The Thessalonian church, this local church, they stood firm in their convictions of the gospel. In other words, the gospel was not their firm conviction only at the moment of salvation. It continued to be their firm conviction that they lived out. In fact, we get the impression from this passage of scripture that they are challenging one another. They're reminding each other of the truth. They're speaking the truth of the gospel to one another. They're reminding each other of the truth of who Jesus is, the truth of what he's doing in the moment, what he's going to do in the future. They're reminding each other, hey, listen, I know the storm is great and I know the weight is heavy and I know the burden's bearing down and I know your eyes can't see it all, but lift your eyes up and look to Jesus, the author and finish of your faith, who literally for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and look at Jesus. Jesus who's seated at the right hand of the Father so that you don't grow weary, so that you don't lose hope. Look to Jesus, keep looking to him. Recognize in Jesus that even though you might be struggling in the moment, God is working. God is molding. God is shaping. 
And even in the suffering, God will be glorified. So the fact of the matter is, is many times we are distant and isolated. It may not be that big of a deal when life is going great and we're getting nothing but good news and hey, life's a bed of roses. I got the feel goods, it's gonna be all right. But man, when the storm comes, that distance is devastating. I believe what God is calling us to see in this church is they were walking together, encouraging one another in their walk with the Lord, comforting one another, encouraging each other, challenging each other, standing firm in their convictions about the gospel, which led thirdly to their conduct, their conduct. The Bible says that not only did they become imitators uh, of how they received the word in the midst of persecution, verse seven, they also became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. What this literally means is their, life were, their lives were so radically changed and so radically transformed by this fellowship with one another, this encouragement of one another, this teaching of one another, this walking with Christ kind of together in community. They were so radically changed that they not only listened to what Paul said and obeyed, but they became an example to everyone else. They used to serve false gods. They used to bow down to dead idols. They used to practice all sorts of immorality. Drunkenness was a way of life for them. That's who they were. That's what they were doing. But God so radically forgave them and cleansed them. The Bible says he changed them and he made them a brand new creation. And so radical was the change. They became an example to all the believers throughout the region. That's how profound their conduct was changed. I love how commentator John Phillips said it, and I gotta say it quickly and move on, but here's what he said. He said at the church of Thessalonica, here's what happened. Licentious people became pure. Dishonest people became trustworthy. Cruel people became kind. The pagans did not just see people who had turned over a new leaf and were trying to live better lives. They saw people who were regenerated by the Holy Spirit, born from above, made loving and joyful, at peace with God themselves and everyone they met, friend and foe alike. They saw a radical, permanent, and miraculous transformation of character. They saw people who were triumphing over temptations, people who were undeterred by the most savage persecution, people whose lives adorned their doctrine. It is amazing when we are in community with other believers and we are committed together. It is amazing how not only do we serve the Lord, but we begin to edify the body and build up one another, encouraging each other to be the people God wants us to be. Here's how it says it in Hebrews chapter 10. Listen to these words. Every Christian has this calling. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking your own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Man, we see the Thessalonian believers practice that with excellence. Final thing, and we'll wrap up. What does a church member look like? Church members commit together to the witness of the Lord. They commit together to the witness of the Lord. In other words, in committing to be a member of a local church, you are agreeing together to be the salt and light that Christ has called you to be in the world around you. 
It's a commitment to be a witness. You know, what's encouraging to me is that God wants us to grow and he wants us to grow in our knowledge of his word and grow in Christ's likeness. But the fact of the matter is, you do not have to know all of the Bible. You don't have to know every form of theology. You don't have to know every detail. You don't have to have a bunch of seminary degrees or a PhD or anything else to be a witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what a witness is? A witness is someone simply who speaks what they've seen and heard, what they've experienced. Yesterday afternoon, my oldest son had been at a basketball tournament in another part of Virginia. And he arrived and I picked him up when they arrived and we made our way home and frankly, it was starting to get dark a little bit. And as I turned the corner, I looked and something caught my eyes being odd. There was a little car that was literally in the middle of a, of a cow pasture. And I'm, I'm driving at the time about 40 miles an hour on a, this country road and I was able to quickly slow down and assess and realize I saw a street sign that was knocked over and then there's like a 12 to 15 foot embankment and then it was clear that a part of that cattle fence had been completely knocked down. You know, I quickly realized somebody lost control of their car, went down the ditch, through the cattle fence, and was in the middle of the pasture. So I immediately turned around, came back, got out, talked to the lady, made sure she was okay, um, called 911. They asked me a question. Were you a witness? I said, what do you, what, what do you mean? She said, did you see what happened? And I said, no, based upon the evidence, here's what I can tell you I think happened. And of course, they got the professionals out there. The fact is, I wasn't a witness. I didn't see it. I didn't experience it. I wasn't there the moment that it happened. I just happened to be one of the people that came up afterwards. Unfortunately, she's okay. A witness of Christ is someone simply who tells what they've seen, heard, and experienced. It's the person who simply says, this is who Jesus is. This is what he's done. And this is what he can do for you. That's what a witness of Christ is. But the fact of the matter is, I can be a witness all by myself. But when we gather together as a body of believers, as a living church of the Lord Jesus Christ, to get outside of these walls and to get into this community and take the gospel at times to Nicaragua and to Ukraine and wherever else God will call us, the reality is this morning, when we partner together to do the very thing that God called us to do, what Christ commissioned his church to do, it's a powerful witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. How powerful is it that when Paul looked at the church at Philippi, the Bible says he looked in Philippians 2, 15 and 16. He said, listen, you live in the midst of a dark and a crooked and a perverse generation. But in the midst of this generation, you church at Philippi, you're shining as bright as stars in the night sky, like lights in the darkness. You're shining bright for all to see. Did you know that part of our calling and commitment as a member of the body of Christ, a member of the local church, is literally to shine like stars in the world around us? Pointing people to Jesus Christ, the light of the world. The Bible says of this church in verse eight, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. It's gone out from you. The word of the gospel of what Jesus has done, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we have with you, how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. In other words, they were letting it be known everywhere they went. When the Bible says literally the word of the Lord sounded forth from them, the word that was used literally meant it was trumpeted aloud. Anybody ever heard a trumpet before? You know what? I love the sound of a trumpet when it's played by somebody who knows what they're doing. But if it's somebody who doesn't know what they're doing, 
There's nothing you can do to hide it. You know what I mean? A trumpet is loud and clear. The testimony of what God had done in the lives of these people and the truth of the gospel was so loud and clear from their lives that Paul, the greatest missionary that the world has ever seen, that Paul, the great apostle, that Paul, the preacher, literally looked as he was going from place to place and region to region and literally said, your witness for Christ is so genuine and so loud and clear. It is so evident through both your lips and your life. I don't even have to say anything. That's what a witness should be like. My question for us today as we close this message is exactly the questions that we started off with. Are you committed to Christ and are you committed to his church. This morning, as I close the message, I wanna ask you very specifically to consider those questions. The basis for everything we've seen about this commitment to the work of the Lord, this commitment to, to walking together with the Lord, this commitment to, to the witness that we are for Christ, those things are nothing apart from the foundation of first having a relationship with Jesus. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what your parents did or didn't do. It doesn't matter the, how, how godly your grandparents were or how ungodly they were. The fact of the matter is every single person can be saved by simply believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and confessing him to be the Lord of their life. The gospel, according to 1 Corinthians 15, is simple. It's the fact that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world, the fact that he was buried in a tomb and he rose again from the grave. All who believe in him will be saved. So often we like to talk about, well, what is the true gospel and anything apart from that is not true. The gospel is the fact that Jesus died, was buried, and he rose again from the grave, and all who believe in him as Lord will be saved. That's the gospel. And so this morning, if you've never believed in Jesus, if you don't have a relationship with God, you can today simply by accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's the truth. But for all of you who've already made that decision and that commitment, I ask you to consider two things. Are you committed to the church? And if not, why not? What, what, what's hindering you? I mean, like really, like what sufficient reason do you have for not committing to the same body that Christ himself gave his life for? And the other part of that question I would wonder would be, how is the church being impacted by your lack of commitment? Are you committed? And then I follow up with one final thing, and that is, if you are a member of a local church, are you being the member that God has called you to be? Paul mapped it out perfectly in 1 Thessalonians, and he calls us to a high standard. I know it's uncomfortable. I know it's challenging. But I'm convinced, for the glory of God and for the good of his church, we should be willing to give nothing less than our best. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Thank you for this morning and for this time together. Lord, I, I understand today that a message like this makes us uncomfortable. 
Literally, it calls us out of our comfort zone. It calls us a place of, of trust and places of surrender. It causes us to, to places of obedience. And so God, I pray today that we would respond, we would act not on the basis of what is comfortable, not on the basis even of our preferences, but on the basis of your word and obedience to it. Lord, it is, it is always a character builder when we can make commitments to the right things. But when we commit to the things that you call us to, it's far more than a character builder. It makes us more like Christ. And so God, I pray today that you would mold us, shape us, convict us and change us in whatever ways it's needed. I pray for the glory of the Lord Jesus alone. Have your way. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.